From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, and sound bites we love from all over the world. Welcome, thank you for calling me. Today, a phone call from out of the blue threatens to recast the past in a whole new light. Now, how do you know Stephen? What drew you to him? What got you interested in him? Wow. Okay. April Domboski is a health reporter at KQED in San Francisco. And up until now, her job has been to write about other people's experiences. But recently, she made a difficult decision to tell her own very personal story, at least in part to help her make sense of a highly unusual and deeply troubling situation. It all started when she received an unexpected phone call at work. Welcome to KQED Voicemail. Please enter your extension. I'm staring at the phone on my desk, and it's like the phone is staring back at me, waiting to see what I do. Press 5 to repeat the current message. I've listened to the current message three times already. Ms. Domboski, it's Patrick Hurley calling. I'm a lawyer in Belleville, Ontario, Canada. He says he's calling about Stephen Bestersee. I understand that you uh, know him. And I'm calling you because I'm trying to find out some background information. He wants me to call him or email him or send him a time when he can call me. I look forward to talking to you. No matter how many times I listen, I can't figure out why a lawyer is calling me and what exactly he wants to know about my college boyfriend. The thing I'm really stuck on is this. Uh, I understand that you uh, know him know him. On one level, this is all wrong. Steve and I said goodbye to each other 15 years ago on a train platform in Philadelphia. Ours was a peaceful, guiltless breakup. But no, I don't know him. I knew him. I understand that you uh, know him. There's another way this feels wrong. It feels inadequate, like a euphemism or a joke. The way Adam knew Eve... Whatever it is I know or knew about Steve, what does it matter now? What does it matter to some lawyer in Canada? It's February 1998, Western Massachusetts. I'm sitting at the back of the bus, my forehead pressed against the window as we pull into the next stop. There are other seats open when the guy with the thick brown hair and lumberjack coat gets on, but he sits next to me. I keep my eyes down on my book. After reading the same paragraph three times, I look past the page. My right leg is touching this guy's left leg, and it's not tentative or awkward. We're sealed from knee to hip. I seem to notice this mainly with my eyes, remarking to myself what an anthropological aberration it is that neither of us has pretended to have an itch. Only when I think about pulling away do I feel it, the electrical current coursing through my thigh, stitching my jeans to his light brown corduroys. I've never felt this before, and I think I like it. So I conclude I should not move. You enjoying that, the guy says to me? nodding toward my William James book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. 
my 19-year-old self certainly doesn't admit that the book is dull or hard to follow or even a bit out there for my taste. I say something like, I think I'm going to major in religion, maybe philosophy. What college do you go to? I don't, the guy says. I just moved here a couple weeks ago. I was dropping off a job application at the shoe store on Main Street. We exchange names, and when I hint that my stop is coming up, Steve asks for my phone number. I tear a corner of paper from my notebook. I think I even draw a heart over the eye in my name. He calls me that night. curled up on my twin bed with the flowered pink bedspread. We blow past the basics pretty quickly. Steve grew up in a suburb of Boston, has a sister, and plays guitar. He did a semester of college in Maine, but failed out because all he did was write music and record an album. I'm into it. A rebel. A musician. He drove cross-country with his best friend and worked as a bike messenger in San Francisco. His parents came to get him after he climbed into the woods in Lake Tahoe and swallowed a bottle of pills. The first semester I spent in college, Steve spent in a series of hospitals. After his third session of electric shock therapy, he woke up and noticed the sunshine for the first time in his life. A couple more sessions, and he was calling the new day beautiful. I'm into it. A feeler. I'm so inspired by his honesty, I decide to offer up my own major liability, the confession that generally ends it with all the other boys. My dad died when I was 17, I say. Cancer, it wasted him. I tell Steve how, when I was young, my dad used to pull me onto his lap so I could watch him paint, or he'd throw me around in the swimming pool. At the end, he was a skeleton of that man. Steve doesn't shift awkwardly on the other end of the phone. He doesn't go quiet. He doesn't fast forward, imagining himself the target of a daddy complex. He says, tell me more about him. After I listen to that voicemail from the lawyer 10 times, I do something I haven't done in a decade. I Google Steve's name. The news articles pop up right away. Two years ago, Steve was arrested. And he's about to go on trial for first-degree murder. He's accused of killing his wife. Uh, I understand that you uh, know him. This is why the lawyer is calling me? And I'm calling you because I'm trying to find out some background information. I can't tell if this lawyer is working for Steve or against him. Either way, my reaction is no way. I'm not getting involved in some murder case, not responding to that phone call, not writing back to that email. The visions flash through my head. Steve sitting in jail in an orange jumpsuit me on the witness stand, spilling the secrets of our relationship while Steve watches. I start to bargain with myself. Maybe if the lawyer calls me three more times, no, five times, then I'll call him back. But then I get an email from Steve's dad, a plea. 
He says the evidence against Steve is overwhelming. He did it. His lawyers are going for an insanity defense. They say Steve was floridly psychotic when he wrapped some kind of cord around his wife's neck and squeezed until she stopped breathing. He was paranoid and delusional when he tucked her dead body in bed and placed her stuffed turtle on the pillow. Steve's dad says his son doesn't belong in prison. He should be getting treatment in a long-term psychiatric facility. And this is why they want my help. Steve's lawyer and a forensic psychiatrist want to know what Steve was like when I knew him. It feels like they're asking me to review my memories of him through the lens of this crime. They want me to recast Steve, the sensitive boyfriend I fell for on the bus, as Steve, the crazy guy who killed his wife. How I remember the three and a half years of our romance is now evidence for whether Steve is at fault for what he did? This is so twisted. When I fell for Steve, the state of his mind was hardly my concern. That's not how I remember him. But if I revise my memory, if I take all the times he acted weird and line them up in a row, will that help him avoid going to prison for the rest of his life? This feels like a time travel mistake in the making, like how interfering in your parents' prom night could result in you never being born. My relationship with Steve is the foundation of my romantic life. If I go back and alter the memory of my first love, how will that revise the meaning of every love that came after? It's summer, 1999, somewhere in Maine. Steve and I are driving five miles an hour through the middle of the woods. We get to a clearing and the most pristine lake I've ever seen. I've never been camping before, and camping is basically Steve's favorite thing ever. So there's a pile of unspoken expectations that I will A, like camping, and B, be good at it. After dinner, I walk down to the edge of the lake. I have a distinct sense that my dad is here in the mist, in the water, in the waning light. In some nonverbal telepathic messaging, my dad tells me that he's watching over me. He tells me that he's the one who sent Steve to sit next to me on the bus. I come back to the campsite, and Steve has pulled out a six-pack and his guitar. For the next two hours around the campfire, we are both in heaven. That's how I remember it. And the closest I have to what Steve remembers from this time are these songs that he wrote and recorded about our time together. I still have the CD he made for me. Walking through the park in summertime with you. I want to be walking through the park in summertime with you. The sunshine's beating down and you have a nice tan. Yeah, sipping lemonade and you're telling me I'm your man. You got two good folks and the love till the end Yes, they're still together and I know that they're still friends Yes, walking through the park in the summertime with you I wanna be walking through the park in the summertime with you
Charlie Law. May I speak with Patrick, please? I called Steve's lawyer on a Tuesday. The trial was set to begin the following Monday. I haven't committed to anything yet, just to this phone call with the lawyer, so we can check each other out, so I can find out exactly what he wants. Uh, good morning. Uh, hi. Is this Patrick? It is. Hi. This is April. How are you? I'm, I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm doing, well, relatively well. Right, right. Getting ready for this trial. So, um... Steve's lawyer goes through the basics. Steve and his wife had a good relationship. Then he lost his job and started acting strangely. His wife asked him to leave, and Steve put his fist into the windshield of her truck. Then Steve was living in the bushes behind her apartment building. A couple days after she was killed, Steve was pulled over by the police 200 miles north. He told them there was a vast government conspiracy, that people were after him. They'd implanted a device in his brain to listen to his thoughts. It's apparent, I think, to any person looking at the first statement that he was severely psychotic at the time. Hurley says they're not trying to argue that Steve didn't do it. 99% of these cases, when there's an insanity defense, it's admitted that the accused committed the offense, but he tells the uh, psychiatrist, for example, you know, God made me do it or I had to do it in order to save this person. So on that basis, you know, what the person did was you know, legally wrong, but it wasn't in his mind morally wrong because it was for a good reason. But Steve says he didn't do it at all. And without a confession, it's very hard for the psychiatrist to determine whether Steve was insane or not when he committed the crime. What, in what way would my participation help? The lawyer says I would be what they call a collateral informant, someone the psychiatrist talks to in order to form a fuller mental portrait of Steve. The doctor talked to his parents and family, of course, to write his report, and now he wants to talk to former girlfriends, too. So far, I'm the only one they've found. And where is, where is Stephen now? He is in the uh, hospital wing of the Quinney Detention Center. And does he, you said he understands what's happening to him? He just doesn't, okay. Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean Stephen is, is, is intelligent, articulate, friendly. But, you know, you, you sit there with him and everything seems to be relatively normal. And he's not someone you're used to sitting across in a jail, believe me. And then he'll say something that is just, I mean, he still thinks things are implanted in him, and he still thinks that there's a government uh, agency that sees and hears through him. This sounds sort of familiar. Steve talked about all kinds of conspiracy theories with me, too. But when you're in love with the person who says them, you shake your head and ignore it. Plus, in college, it doesn't stand out. When you're 20, railing on capitalism and corrupt politicians, conspiracy talk blends in pretty easily. But it was this kind of talk that raised alarms for Steve's wife and dad in the months leading up to the crime. Hurley's defense will center on the ways the government didn't do enough for Steve. The health care services in Ontario, I don't know if you know it or not, it's tough to get psychiatrists to see people quickly. When Steve finally gets an appointment, his dad sends a letter to the psychiatrist saying, don't let Steve fool you. He needs to be hospitalized. And he doesn't do anything. He says, come back in a month's time. When Steve punches the car window, his dad calls the police and says, my son is mentally ill. He needs help. Unfortunately, the police didn't do anything. 
Then his wife calls the police again to say that Steve is living in her bushes. And so the police go there, a single officer who takes, a, I think, a fairly cursory look around, doesn't see him, and that's the end of it. His wife was killed that weekend. The lawyer says it was one system failure after another. Quite frankly, if Dr. Ash, in my view, had done his job, we wouldn't be where we are now. I'm strangely quiet while Hurley auditions his case on me. I give no mm-hmm or ugh. I'm preoccupied with myself and what Steve thinks of all this. When we broke up, we made a pact to honor the love we shared even after it ended. I feel like to do what the lawyer is asking me to do, to help Steve, I have to break that promise. Um, does, so does he know that you're trying to contact me? Um, okay. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, you know, uh, I, what I, I had to find out from him, first of all, who he had uh, had relationships with in the past, and the names he gave the doctor were mixed up. And so I called his dad, I said, do you recognize these names? And then he sort of put the names together. I, mean, he, he, I can tell you that Stephen didn't say April Dembowski. He, he he got the name April late, but other than that, uh, I see he didn't he didn't remember my last name. No. Oh, wow. Um. Uh, and so what? Um. I'm putting the lawyer in an awkward position here. I've been in my own internal torture chamber this last week, fretting about whether this phone call is an act of love or betrayal, and Steve doesn't even remember my name. I guess it's, I guess I am, what's hard for me is, does he, does it even matter to him if I participate or not? Does it matter to him if I talk to you and then I don't participate? Does it matter to him what I say? Well, I can tell you, he certainly didn't initiate this. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was happy to hear you're doing well when I told him that, that you are uh, uh, doing well. This call is strange for me to listen back to. Steve is on trial for his life, and all I can think about is what he thinks of me. Here I am, trying to protect the chrysalis I've molded around our happy memories. And Steve's not thinking of me at all. I feel betrayed. Sitting on a mountain top way up high So high, so high she tried to tell me that I'm crazy and I tried Oh, I tried, yes, I tried and You haven't got the time, nor have I Nor have I, nor have I To try and make amends with a loony tune So bye-bye, bye-bye Summer 1998, Amherst, Massachusetts. 
few months after I meet Steve, I get a room in an apartment down the road from Steve's place and score a summer job with a landlord-tenant lawyer. One day, the paralegal comes back from her lunch break and says, there's a strange guy sitting on the bench outside the door. He was there when I left half an hour ago. Should we call the police? I get up from my desk and pull the curtain back a bit so I can get a look. That's my boyfriend, I say. I go outside. Steve, you gotta get out of here. My boss is coming back from court. I find out later from Steve's friend that he got fired that morning. It was his second day on the job, and his boss smelled alcohol on his breath. For months, Steve has gotten by without working, selling his medications to his friends for rent money. It doesn't occur to me to worry about Steve or wonder if he should be taking those medications. In my journals from the time, I rant about how he's lazy, lying in bed all day. Steve says every day is like fighting a new battle, but I accuse him of not controlling his emotions better. We fight about his world and my world. My world is also called the real world, where people suck it up and work for the man. Steve's world is the land of music and feelings and losing control. We both long to inhabit each other's worlds. When things are going smoothly, there's an easy bridge between us. I tell him he belongs and he can do it. He gives me permission to go dark, to cry about my dad. I think the fact that I don't talk about Steve's diagnosis is part of what he likes. Steve's been visiting therapists since he was seven. His dad's a psychiatrist. He sees me as an escape from all that. With me, he can mess up, but then get back on track. With me, he's not confined to this idea that he's sick, and it's forever. And there will be sunny days, I swear. Yes, sunny days, I swear. After I talk to Steve's lawyer, I'm still undecided about what to do, whether or not to serve as this collateral informant. I have visions of coworkers finding out and whispering about me and my murderer ex-boyfriend. I'm having dreams of Steve being released from a psychiatric institute in 20 years and coming to find me. But then I get another email from Steve's dad. It says, Patrick told me you contacted him. I can't tell you how grateful I am for your kindness and generosity in doing this. As you can imagine, this has been a nightmare that we never imagined we would have to endure. I wish I could say that I arrived at a clear moment of conviction and generosity, like what Steve's dad saw in me. That I just knew it was the right thing to do and I had to do it. Stand up for Steve. But really, turning back and saying no was scarier than just saying yes. I just didn't want to look as selfish as I felt. It's summer 1999, Amherst, Massachusetts. At the end of my sophomore year, Steve and I move into an apartment together for the summer. 
we bring my futon bed and his papazan chair. I bike to work, cleaning motel rooms in the morning and writing articles for the local paper in the afternoons. Steve has been working full-time at a bookstore for nine months. At night, we sit on the front stoop, looking at the stars. Steve picks at his guitar and a banjo he picked up. He's writing songs now with titles like Out of the Dark. For July 4th, we go to visit his parents outside Boston. We've become regulars here in the summer and at Christmas. Holidays with my mom and brother have sucked without my dad. In general, I've come to prefer Steve's family to my own. We sleep on a pull-out couch underneath a painting I gave Steve's parents, one of my dad's. My dad painted a lot of fanciful scenes like this. A carousel horse riding through purple mountains with a jockey on its back who looks like me. For the fourth, we all go to a street fair in Plymouth, and Steve and I dress up for one of those old western Jesse James photo booths. Then we climb the steps of a white colonial, where Steve and I have back-to-back appointments with an astrologer named Nancy. Nancy tells me that Steve and I have known each other over thousands of past lifetimes. She tells Steve that he is a very old soul, something he takes to lording over me when it's convenient. That same weekend, Steve has another appointment with an energy healer. She hypnotizes him so he can confer with his past lives. And this is where he meets Blue, his spirit guide. When we get home, Steve starts biking into the woods to meditate and communicate with Blue. The energy healer tells Steve that if he trains correctly, he can harness his energies to control weather patterns or alter gene growth, as in stop cancer cells from mutating. I don't know what to make of it all. I think maybe my soul isn't old enough to understand. I join in in the way I know how. I suggest that my dad is one of my spirit guides. And Steve embraces this. He allows me to believe that my dad is still with me, that I haven't totally lost him. And so I totally support however and whenever Steve wants to commune with Blue. Is this Dr. Bloom? Mm-hmm. My name is April Domboski. Right. It's the day before Steve's trial is about to begin. Dr. High Bloom is one of the psychiatrists who will give expert testimony on Steve. Listen, thank you for calling me. He's been assessing Steve over the last two years since the arrest, and he's planning to finish his official report at the end of the week. So first of all, I'm a psychiatrist. And in this case, I'm a psychiatrist who specializes in forensic psychiatry. It means I don't treat people and I don't generally form uh, doctor-patient relationships with them. This makes me nervous. So even though I'm hired by his defense counsel, I'm not cheering for Stephen. I'm not in any way attached to the outcome of the case. Okay. 
is there anything else I need to do in order to help get you in your comfort zone? I can't think of anything that would make me comfortable at this moment. Now, how do you know Stephen? And what drew you to him? What got you interested in him? Wow. Okay. Um, we just kind of had an immediate magnetic connection. He, he was a very emotional person. And that was something I was very interested in at that time. Meaning he was a man who could kind of um, talk about, he could, he could experience and talk about his feelings more so than maybe some other guys? Yeah, he was really good at that. Okay. How'd the relationship go? I start to laugh, as if I can somehow sum up three and a half years in a few sentences. He was really sweet. He was a really sweet guy. He was really sad. Did you know he had mental health issues going into the relationship? I did know that. I tell him about the confessions from our first phone call, the electric shock treatments, the suicide attempt. Yeah, it sounds like he was really quite forthcoming with you about his background. Yes. Yeah, a lot of, I suppose a lot of people would feel a bit unsteady about that, you know, at the outset of a new relationship. (sighs) Is he asking me to defend how I fell in love with a crazy guy? Is he asking me if I'm crazy too? I tell him someone close to me had died. I felt like I was kind of intense, and I felt like Steve, he was able to handle that in a way that other people my age weren't. Other people my age were not used to talking about death or didn't want to talk about death. Sounds like he had a level of personal life experience that really resonated well with you and and, and what you were going through at the time. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, I think, just as I remember his history, you actually saw him or became involved with him at a time when he was generally doing a lot better than he had been doing previously and doing a lot better than he ended up doing considerably subsequently. Whoa. I got Steve's best years? Did you ever see firsthand any evidence of Stephen being delusional or psychotic? Um, there is one time. It feels... It feels like a betrayal to tell you. I'll, I'll tell you, and if it's helpful. But, um, but this is one of those circumstances where the memory meant one thing before hearing about this case and another thing after. There was one time um, early. During that first summer when Steve couldn't hold down a job. I came over to his place and he thought he was sitting outside of his apartment. On the floor, his knees tucked up under his chin. He said, don't, don't go in there. There's bugs everywhere. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, there's just bugs all over the floor. I open the door a crack and see the dark brown carpet. I imagine my toes squishing into a tide pool of ants. And I went in and I was like, Steve, there's no, there's no bugs in there. He's like, they're not? And I said, no, there's, there's no bugs in there. He was like, oh. He's like... He said, there's nothing like having your girl look you in the eye and tell you everything's going to be okay. Dr. Bloom asks if there was anything else like this, and I pony up Steve's spiritual beliefs for revision. He would talk about having spirit guides. Right. I mean, this is an example of something that at the time was at worst a little bit woo-woo. 
I guess when you hear news like this, it starts to reshape memories that you have. You know, memories of him talking to his spirit guides and his spirit guides talking to him start to take on like a slightly different meaning or memory now. Dr. Bloom asks how the relationship ended, and I say we just grew apart. Steve was seeing more and more things as spiritual. I was starting to wonder if all those mystical encounters with my dad were really psychological fantasies I had created for myself. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't sad anymore. I was situationally sad at the time when I met him and I had a lot to grieve, but I was, I was growing out of that and I didn't need to be so sad all the time. Once when we were younger, she cried for all my fears. Now that I am older, I cry for all those years. Cause I've always been here. It's spring 2000, Paris. Almost a full year of the time Steve and I are together, we are not together. I spend my junior year in France studying French philosophers, and Steve stays in Western Mass. My letters to Steve are full of existentialist buzzwords like self-transformation and autonomy. I get a letter from Steve's mom. She says Steve misses me and my steadying and supportive presence. When I come home, Steve is living and working on an organic farm. He's been driving tractors and learning what phase of the moon is good for planting seeds. the fields with my bare feet carrying a shovel gonna dig some holes gonna bury all my troubles in a deep dark place i'm gonna keep them there until you go away but steve sees me as a city person he's already writing our breakup song the lines on my shirt are crinkled and the buttons are poorly sewn and i take it off with a casual mention to realize i have grown well i have grown trying new things too. New clothes, new friends, new hobbies. Steve starts saying, that's not you. But what I hear is, I need you to be the same because I'm relying on who you are. Well, now you're willing to face him, but you're not sure how to get yourself free. And the blankets don't cover your feet at night well, when the Beatles say, let it be, they meant let it be. I was 21, and I hated the idea of someone needing me, someone holding me back. I was so protective of my autonomy that I couldn't always see when Steve wanted us to grow together. I missed out on a lot of Steve's love because of this. Someone left a light on in the bathroom could have been me and it could have been you. 
But the sun's gone down and the grass been mowed, so I think that it's time we choose. The first-degree murder trial of a Trenton man begins today in a Belleville court. The trial starts in May of 2015 and lasts for more than four weeks. I follow along every day, reading the local newspaper. Then I fill in the gaps with the court transcript. The first witnesses will take the stand this afternoon. The day Steve meets Carolyn, he writes to his parents to tell them he just met the woman of his dreams. It was an immediate magnetic connection, and within three months, they move in together. Steve takes her on a canoeing and camping trip and proposes. They visit with Steve's parents every Christmas and Thanksgiving. Carolyn calls them mom and dad. Her mom died of cancer when she was a teenager. They're married two years when things start to unravel. Steve's medical records show that he stops taking his antipsychotic medication, then gets laid off from his job. He sits at home all winter smoking cigarettes. They have to foreclose on their house. Carolyn is getting food from a local food bank. They move to a smaller apartment that summer. Carolyn emails Steve's parents and says, Steve stopped eating the food she cooks because he believes she's trying to poison him. He believes there's a secret U.S. chemical laboratory buried under their home. In Carolyn's emails to her best friend, though, she says Steve has a few issues. Mainly, he's decided not to look for work and follow the rules of society. In August, Carolyn asks Steve to move out. In September, on a Friday, she calls the police and says Steve's been sleeping in her bushes, but they don't find him. On Monday, Carolyn doesn't show up for work. The police find her dead, in bed with the covers pulled up, the fan on, and her beloved stuffed turtle on the pillow. The DNA evidence found at the scene leaves no doubt that Steve is the one who did it. There were times in my relationship with Steve that I envisioned being his wife. I had elaborate fantasies about our married life, actually, and wrote about them in a letter to Steve. It's about a year and a half into our relationship. I'm 20. The letter starts like this. It's Sunday morning. We're in our 30s. You roll over in bed, discover I'm not there, then come downstairs for coffee. Having quit smoking more than 15 years earlier, you have no craving to sneak out for a cigarette. The letter goes on like this for four pages. Defense lawyer Patrick Hurley directed the jury's attention to Stephen Bestercy's mental state. After Steve is arrested for murder, he gets put in a prison hospital. History and medical records proves he is not criminally responsible due to a disease of the mind. For the two years before his trial, two forensic psychiatrists evaluate Steve, including Dr. Bloom, the one I talked to. Through their reports and testimony, we see the events leading up to Carolyn's death through Steve's eyes. A few months after he stops taking his medication, Steve emails his parents about how his spiritual healing powers have really taken off. At the bank and at the grocery store, he's blowing people's minds by telling them about their past lives. After he loses his job, Steve describes a night he's watching TV. 
Carolyn is upstairs in the bedroom. Steve is downstairs. He hears a voice from the TV say, Relax in your chair. He becomes paralyzed. He can't move. And he sees a tube, like a thick cylinder of water, snaking out of the TV. Then he hears a thump upstairs, and the voice says, We're healing her womb. Steve says later that it was alien forces who pinned him down and assaulted his wife. He starts following her to work to protect her. Then, Steve says Carolyn starts to look and act like someone else. Voices in the TV tell him she is the queen of an alien race. He believes she's after him. A voice in a billboard tells him, you're married to an alien. The two psychiatrists say they are 100% sure that Steve has schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. The paranoid delusions, the grandiose spiritual powers, it all fits. And the way he talks about it all, his thoughts are so disorganized. They say it's impossible to fake. So according to science, Steve is really, really sick, floridly psychotic. But according to the law, Steve is not insane. This is because Steve is not confessing. He's not saying, Carolyn was taken over by the aliens and I had to kill her to protect myself. He's not even saying, I can't remember what happened. He says he remembers everything and he didn't do it. The psychiatrists say his denial is most likely another symptom of his psychosis. The same voices that told Steve he was married to an alien could now be threatening him not to talk about what happened to Carolyn. If he does... Other people he loves could be hurt. But there's no room in the law for this. The way I understand all of it is that Steve is so crazy, he's too crazy for the insanity defense. At this point, I start to think about all the times I got frustrated with Steve, not finding a job or showing up at my work, all the times I blamed him for being lazy. I can't help but compare myself to Carolyn, not calling the police, not insisting on seeing a doctor. I never saw Steve as bad as Carolyn did, but I can imagine the internal dialogue she may have had, telling herself that things will get better, refusing for so long to see how bad it really was. When she finally decides to leave him, she texts a friend and says, I still love him, but I definitely can't live with him. Crown attorney Jody White told the jury that the accused just couldn't take no for an answer from his wife. The prosecution has a very different take on why Steve is standing by his account. He did it, and he's lying. And killed her in an obsessive rage. The prosecutor says this is a typical domestic homicide. Carolyn was moving on with her life. She got a new place, a new job. She was getting her finances back on track. Carolyn's friends and co-workers cried on the stand, remembering her last weeks. They said Carolyn wanted to move from her second-floor apartment to the third floor for safety and peace of mind. She filed a maintenance request asking for an extra lock on her balcony door. The prosecutor agrees, yes, Steve has a mental illness, but she says that doesn't eliminate his ability to calculate and deceive. In her closing statement, she says the psychiatrist and Steve's family just won't take off their mental illness glasses. All they see in Steve is the patient. But she says Carolyn saw the man. 
She accepted him, his spiritual beliefs, his forays into channeling, and that is what made him so dependent on her. Steve drew his very value system and sense of self from Carolyn being in his life. He needed her, and he was relying on her to stay the same. I drop the court transcript on the floor. I can't decide what to feel. I see myself in every frame. I see the crime from both perspectives. When the prosecutor speculates that Steve is tired of people blaming things on his mental illness, there's a part of me that agrees with her. Steve is a smart guy. He knows what he needs to say to make the insanity defense work. And he's not saying it. Maybe he's not saying those things because his mental illness is stopping him. Maybe he's not saying them because, to him, declaring to the world that he's insane is worse than going to prison. It's hard to tell if that conversation I had with Dr. Bloom made any difference in the trial. He testified that Steve had never been violent with me and other girlfriends. And because there was no history of aggression, Dr. Bloom concluded that when Steve killed his wife, he was swept up in the middle of a psychotic episode. He said the best place for Steve was in a psychiatric institute. But that's not how the jury saw it. They deliberated for less than a day before delivering the verdict. They found Steve guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison. It's spring 2001, San Francisco, about a year after I finish college and say goodbye to Steve on the train platform in Philadelphia. We begin to plan a reunion. Steve had been farming in New Zealand, leaving me messages on my answering machine in a poorly executed Kiwi accent. I was working at a law firm in San Francisco. A good friend of mine met Steve on this visit. He says that I was in a tizzy for weeks before he arrived, wondering if Steve and I were going to get back together. I deny this. I tell him he's remembering it wrong. And then I find a card from Steve's mom in my memory shoebox. Apparently, I had had a long phone call with Steve's sister before his visit, and whatever I said prompted Steve's mom to write, We would be delighted if you and Steve saw your way clear to making a permanent commitment to each other. We'd love you to be part of the family. Here's what I remember from that trip. Getting sick and asking Steve to sleep in the living room— how we go to the supermarket, Steve slips two bottles of wine into the basket, then manipulates me into paying for them. Steve playing guitar at my request, his eyes closed as his fingers pick the strings like a lullaby. It's like he's singing to himself. The thing I remember most is Steve and I going to the movies to see A Beautiful Mind. Russell Crowe plays John Nash as he develops his groundbreaking economic theory at Princeton while he slowly descends into a paranoid schizophrenic frenzy. Jennifer Conley plays Alicia, the student smitten with Nash's brilliance, who marries him right before the voices in his head make their public debut. While Nash is strapped to a bed, convulsing from electric shock treatments, Alicia's friend asks her what she's really feeling, and she says, obligation, guilt over wanting to leave. 35 years later, when Nash receives the Nobel Prize, he looks at Alicia in the audience and says, 
I'm only here tonight because of you. You are the reason I am. Steve and I let the credits roll to the end before we leave our seats and catch the 31 bus back to my place. It's crowded, so we inch down the aisle and stand in the back. Steve grabs one of the canvas straps overhead, and I reach up for the one next to it. He looks out the window and says, that's what it's like. I search his face for more, then I lower my eyes and lean my forehead into his chest. I don't have to say things out loud to Steve, because I know that he knows what I'm thinking to myself. Deep down, I always knew that Steve held dear a fantasy of a wife like the one in the movie, someone who would help him battle the demons in his head in defense of his genius. I shake my head. I can't do it, I say to myself. I just can't do it. Daddy would hold her and say you're the one In the paintings I do Telling stories in only one scene Telling stories of you Lovers in lines to get through the door She'll have lovers in lines to get through the door If on the cover was a picture of her lover, well, you'd read the last page too That was I'm Your Man, from producer April Domboski for The Leap, from KQED. We spoke to April about why she decided to share this tragic and intensely personal story. My primary motivation in in recording folks back then was very much about wanting to get a grip on what was happening. But at the time, I was just so thick in the middle of the experience that the, the decision to actually make a story happened much later. One of the things that's most gripping about I'm Your Man is how it's structured. Though Steve's trial doesn't begin until the second part of the piece, in a way the entire story holds April's memories up as evidence, and we, the audience, are asked to be the jury. I did want people to decide, but I wanted people to decide in the context of what they knew about my relationship with him, you know, and that's not something that shows up in any of the news articles that were written during the trial. When I read the news articles as the trial was going on, you know, Steve was just another defendant. He was a person who committed a crime. He wasn't a real person who had loved and lived, you know. I wanted people to decide for themselves, but in the context of who he had been to me. Even though we hear Steve's voice in the songs he wrote about you and your relationship, his actual voice is absent from the piece. I'm just wondering why you decided not to interview him. I think on some level I wasn't ready for that um, because I felt so conflicted about the crime. I wasn't ready to, you know, sit down and talk to him. You know, one of the things I balanced in this story was at at the beginning when I decided to do it, I kind of had to ask myself if I was going to 
try to approach it like a journalist. You know, was I going to attempt to be objective here and and gather all the different points of view? And I decided early on that that was going to be totally impossible for me to do, that there was no way I was going to be able to represent Carolyn and who she was and, and who she was to other people and what she meant. And there was no way I could come in and interview Steve and, you know, pretend to be some kind of reporter. You know, that wouldn't work for me and that wouldn't work for him, for sure. And ultimately, what I really decided about what this piece would be is a memoir. And it was going to be about me and it was going to be about my views and my perspective and, and the way I saw things. And because I wanted to focus very much on this question of memory and how we preserve our memories and how they get revised over time, I wanted them to be my memories. And I wanted Steve's memories insofar as I had them from that time, which is what the music was. But I didn't think that Steve's voice reflecting on what happened or the past really fit here. Did doing the story help put the experience of your relationship with Steve and what happened afterwards into some kind of perspective? Because it seems like it could just be very unsettling and very stirring and churning. And I'm wondering if the process of doing the piece helped you sort through it and come to a a different place. Yes and no. On the question of the crime, I I don't feel settled about it. I mean, Steve killed his wife. And I did expert interviews. You know, I talked to other psychiatrists and legal experts to understand the insanity defense and kind of how the law and science intersect or don't intersect. Despite all that research and all that reading, because of my personal investment in this person, I don't feel like I ever truly reached a conclusion where I felt like I sided clearly with the defense or the prosecution. I still feel totally torn and in the middle about that. Mm -hmm. But then in terms of, you know, the memories, in terms of this question, you know, do I get to keep my memories of our relationship for what they were? I, I do feel very clearly after writing the piece that I do, you know, that There were multiple reasons why I did the story, and one of them was to preserve my memories and to preserve who Steve was in my life. And there were just so many things that I got out of that relationship and so many ways that I was able to grow. I mean, I grieved the death of my father in the space of a very loving and caring relationship. And... Nothing Steve did after that could change that. You know, every relationship we have, but every interaction we have, you know, with other people, I I believe they change you in some subtle way. So every time I interview somebody for a story or, you know, having this conversation with you, there's like little minute changes that kind of happen in our psyche and they become part of who we are. And I think doing the story helped me see that Steve made me a more beautiful, healthy person. And I get to keep that. 
That was April Domboski, producer of I'm Your Man for The Leap from KQED. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Isabel Vasquez and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. The Third Coast team also includes Emily Kennedy and Rebecca Silverman. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 2,000 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Want to stay up to date on the latest Third Coast happenings? Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter at thirdcoastfestival.org. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough.